0: The Divided Line is a concept, or better yet, an analogy that Plato provides us with at the very end of Republic Book 6. It's very famous because it sets out in a sort of graphic form that you can easily visualize. How all of the different modes of knowing things and of proceeding and discussing them and the things themselves, how all of those are related to each other in Plato's metaphysics and his epistemology, that is in his understanding of how things really are and in his understanding or doctrine about how we come to know things and what the various modes of knowledge or just pretenders to knowledge happen to be. He begins by having Socrates suggest that we think of a line that is in some respects unevenly divided and We could represent this in whatever way we want to. Traditionally, it is represented with the visible side of the line, that is the part that pertains to the visible world and our modes of apprehension of those things of the visible world as getting the smaller part of the line. And then the intelligible world, which is not visible, but is understandable as grasped by our minds, gets a much larger part of the mind. And because Plato really does like mathematics and and ratios he suggests that the line should be divided first into the, the two parts and then each of those two parts should be similarly divided along the same ratio between you might say a higher or better part and a lower part now the line itself is in some respects a continuum but in other respects it represents a set of intervals and what are we going from and to? If we think about it in terms of our own apprehension of things, we might, depending on our level of development, we might not actually be able to grasp why the the things on the higher side of the line are, in fact, clearer and more understandable than the things on the lower side of the line because we're accustomed to them. But if we actually understood things correctly, that is, if we had developed ourselves through the sort of means that Plato suggests. of of dialectic and actually studying mathematics as well and contemplation and divorcing ourselves from the material, visible realities, which aren't really realities for Plato, but merely copies of the truer, realer things. If we'd done that, we would be able to see that the things that fall on the invisible, immaterial, ideal side of the line actually do possess a greater clarity. And the things on the other side of the line possess. Possess, or rather, are possessed by or suffer an unclarity, a lack of being intelligible. And this stems from them also not being truly what they put themselves out as being, not truly being what they are. So we've got this fundamental division between the things that are visible, material, the things that are are grasped by us through perception, about which we talk constantly, about which we form conjectures, but really we don't fully know, which include, uh, by the way, our own bodies, although Plato doesn't mention this here. And then on the other side, we have the things of the intelligible world. So let's start with the interval, the shorter interval of the material things. Plato says we can divide this into two sections. And the first section is that of images or shadows or reflections and he talks about for example reflections in water but also he says reflections in hard surfaces so you might think about a mirror for example or you might think about when you're looking at a piece of glass or burnished metal or whatever else it is that you might see your own reflection or the reflection of other things within and then he adds another key phrase there that allows us to extend this to all sorts of things, including you watching me in a video, everything else of that kind. So images in general, whether they're paintings or print or video or whatever you want to think of, all of that sort of stuff are within the realm of images, within the realm of copies, then we also have, in the material world, what we're tempted to call real things, as opposed to the mere images of them. Plato thinks that they're not really real in the sense that the most real things are, but let's start where we are. So those would include, he says, animals. That includes us, right? We're among the animals. Plants. And then he talks about everything that is made by human beings, so we can call those artifacts if you like, houses, if you live in a city like I do, you're constantly surrounded by things that are artifacts. This chalkboard that I'm using to depict things is an artifact, as is the camera and the recording devices. I'm using my tie, my shirt. Pretty much everything that we can encounter is either natural or it's human-made. And... All these are visible. Well, some may be less visible than others. The wind, for example. But it, it is material, right? And these things are, in some respect, more real, more true. They have a certain being. And the copies of them have less. And the copies refer to the material things, right? You see an image of a dog. Well, there has to be a dog. Or even when we put things together like a unicorn, perhaps there were unicorns at one time, but uh, there certainly aren't any now as far as we know. We take the idea of a horse and then we take a horn and plunk it on top. And if we want to add in other things about is fierce to everybody but versions, well, that's, that's just stuff that we're tacking on to it. And we're trying to create something that's like a copy of a non-existent material thing. But if it did exist, it would exist as a material thing. That's that side of the line. When we move to the other side of the line, things are a little less clear in the dialogue. And Socrates has to do a bit more explaining, some of which is going to bring in some discussion of the geometric arts or sciences. And we'll, we'll go to that in a moment. We have on this side some things that do qualify as forms or ideas, uh, A-day or idee, right, in Plato's terms, and those are not material. Those don't exist in the same sense that material objects do. So if we think, for example, about the circle, right, draw a circle on a chalkboard, that's a a circle drawn in chalk, and it's never a perfect circle, right? Everything that's material is in some way not quite what the ideal is, and the ideal is a perfect circle that is the pattern or archetype or idea of those. And many people would say, well, that's just a concept that you've put together in your mind, sort of idealizing away from the real circles that you've seen. But with Plato, it's actually the opposite. The material things that we're tempted to call real existing things are really just copies of the ideal. The ideal is more real than the material things are. So the ideal circle is more real than all the circles that you can draw whether in sand or chalk or charcoal or engraving on stone or metal. Whatever circles you make out of rope or wood or anything else that you pick. You make a circle with your arms. That's not as real as the circle that it derives from. And in a certain way, you can say, well, just as the images here are copies of the material things, the material things are merely copies of those things. And we might include other forms in there as well, although Plato doesn't say it at this point. When, you know, he talks about the form of the bed, for example, or we might think of a form of a chair or other objects like that. Perhaps those forms are actually actually at this part of the line and they're grasped in the way that things in that part of the line are. Finally, the things that are actually most real, true, intelligible, understandable, Those are the forms or ideas themselves not understood in reference or by means of images or copies or anything like that, but understood in their own right. And this includes the form of the good or as Plato's calling it here in this section, the good itself. Agathon autos, right? The thing that is the good, which is in a certain way, is a form that gives the other forms their being and and their goodness and all of those other things. And we don't have to go too deep into that right now. So we've got all of these different things. And what else we need to say about this side, the intelligible side of the line? is that Plato thinks that the ways in which we are grasping the forms, for example, of mathematical objects or of beds, you know, that we think are the real bed as opposed to the copies that the carpenter makes or the images or anything like that, These are all grasped in a certain conditioned manner. He talks about grasping them by means of hypotheses or assumptions. So we're not grasping the thing as such, what is most real in its own right. We're grasping it in a way by ascending from the images and the material things to those forms. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we just shouldn't assume that that is the end of the story. Because what gets us to the end of the story is, as he says, the use of dialectic, which allows us to move past these assumptions or if you want to think about it in another way he's got a really wonderful way of speaking about it here he says we mean to distinguish the aspect of reality and the intelligible which is contemplated by the power of dialectic as something truer and more exact than the object of the so-called arts and sciences whose assumptions are arbitrary starting points. And he says, it is true that those who contemplate them, meaning the the objects of dialectic, are compelled to use their understanding and not their senses, yet because they do not go back to the beginning in the study but start from assumptions, they do not think they possess true intelligence about them. But what can they do? They can, he says, lay hold by the power of dialectic on these things, treating its assumptions not as absolute beginnings but rather as underpinnings, footings, springboards that allow them to move beyond just these hypotheses. What he's talking about there is a sort of unconditioned science that will eventually come to be called metaphysics. Plato is not using that term that comes into origin with Aristotle, but that is really what he's talking about. Now, the other thing that's really important here is thinking about the modes of knowledge or facsimile of knowledge, if you like, or pseudo knowledge that our minds or our souls employ in grasping these things. Again, let's start at the low end of the scale. And Plato uses certain Greek terms and some of them are easy to translate. Others are not quite so easy to translate. Eccasia comes from the word acon, right? Image. And the idea here is that we grasp these shadows, reflections, copies of copies, images, all those sorts of things through acasia, and Eccasia you could call it, it's been translated as imagination or imagining. It's also been translated as picture thinking. What you're doing is you're grasping the pictures themselves. And you take those as if they're real things, even though they're, they're not actually real. They're, they're merely copies. And this falls in the realm of opinion or doxa, not real knowledge. It's things that we could actually be right about, but if we do happen to be right, it's not because we possess genuine knowledge. It's because we got lucky or we have a certain knack for getting things right in those ways. And even when we move to the realm of the material objects, we're still dealing with the realm of opinion. Here Plato uses the term pistis which we can easily translate as belief. Later on in other authors, it will come to mean faith. can also mean a certain sort of credence. These are all really synonyms for each other. Trust is another way of understanding it. It's not knowledge. It's not really grasping the things as such, but being able to sort of negotiate our way around with them. Once we start moving past that for Plato into the realm of the intelligible, we start to make more progress in terms of using higher parts of our mind. And we have the possibility of genuine knowledge. Plato is going to divide this into two different sorts here. And there's different ways of translating these. There aren't any really great English translations for these terms but we can talk about what the functional difference is. Deanoia is the lower form, and this is a sort of discursive, still using images and hypotheses way of grasping things, but it is a true grasp of those things. So the person who is doing geometry and has managed to move past looking at a circle on a page or triangles or whatever it happens to be that's being discussed and to conceptualize the principles involved evolved the things themselves the the forms as plato would say they do have genuine knowledge geometry is a real science and we can say similar things about others as well even the doctor who is beginning with bodies but is conceptualizing how they work and grasping them in, in terms of their forms plato does think that medicine is a, a form of science or techné, right they are using dianoia. They are using what we might call understanding or reasoning or discursive thinking. When we move past that, when we move higher than that, when we are grappling with the ideas themselves when we're engaged in contemplation of them and using dialectic, then we are doing noesis or we are, you might say, noesis, right? And this is the highest capacity of a human being. So noesis, that's translated in some places as reason. That's probably a bit misleading. Understanding is another way. Intellection. I do want to resist the notion that we can associate this with a purely intuitive grasp of things because dialectic itself is not simply intuitive in the sense of like a gut feeling right all of that would actually be down at the other end but if you want to think of it as intuition it would be the kind of intuition you would have to work really hard through first of all discursive means to get to and then you would finally enjoy and it would not be something that you could reach by some sort of leap skipping all the work involved now to bring this to a close one of the things that plato is telling us here is that we move from these lower ends of the line into the intelligible non-material region by means of using those images the material things which are images of the forms and the images of the images And one of the things that you should think over, and I'm just going to leave this as something to meditate upon, is, well, what is this analogy or metaphor of the divided line itself? It is indeed something that is being represented in speech and of which we can produce a sort of schema or image Are we ourselves doing precisely the sort of thing, at least on a lower scale, that Plato himself has outlined for us in terms of the divided line? Is it possible that some people might grasp the divided line solely as an image and others might go beyond that and use it as a means to approach... And then finally, to be in communication with what Plato calls the forms. I leave that to you as an open question. What do you make of the divided line? Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com slash sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.